Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, I'm interviewing Donald Carveth about his book, Psychoanalytic Thinking, a Dialectical Critique of Contemporary Theory and Practice, published by Rutledge in 2018. Donald Carveth is an emeritus professor of sociology and a senior scholar at York University in Toronto. He is a training and supervising analyst in the Canadian Institute of Psychoanalysis and a past director of the Toronto Institute. After completing a doctorate comparing and contrasting sociological and psychoanalytic theories of human nature, he undertook clinical psychoanalytic training, graduating from the Toronto Institute of Psychoanalysis in 1985. He is the past editor-in-chief of the Canadian Journal of Psychoanalysis, and he has published some 80 papers and reviews in various academic journals. He is also in private practice in Toronto. So welcome to the program, Dr. Carveth. Hi, Philip. Nice to be with you. Thank you. And am I, am I pronouncing your last name correctly, Carveth? That's correct. Yes, you're one of the few people who gets that right. Oh, yeah. I was just by chance, I think. And then, by the way, explain to us the difference between there's the Canadian Institute of Psychoanalysis and then there's a Toronto Institute of Psychoanalysis. Yes, all of the cities in Canada that have psychoanalytic institutes, um, starting at the east with uh, the Quebec uh, City Institute, and then in Montreal, there's both an English and a French uh, branch, and then uh, Ottawa, Toronto, uh, then nothing as we cross the prairies until we get to Vancouver. Uh, all of those institutes and corresponding societies are sub-branches of the Canadian Institute. So I was director, I trained at the Toronto Institute and uh, some decades later became director of the Toronto Institute. Okay, well, so let's jump in and look at this book. And why don't we start with just tell us why you decided to write this book? Well, I guess from um, it all began back in my analytic training. Um, As an academic, I already was familiar with Freud and uh, came to analytic training with a Freudian orientation, only to discover uh, that at that time in the uh, late 1970s, some of the most senior training analysts uh, were having conversion uh, experiences, um, not like St. Paul on the road to Damascus, but on the road to Chicago, where they sat at the feet of Heinz Kohut and came back to Toronto with missionary zeal. It was like they wanted to do a recall of all of the patients they treated from the Freudian orientation and redo them. Uh, Alice Self Psychology. And as a candidate, I'm caught between these. Um, I might have a Freudian supervisor, but a Cohutian reader. And uh, it was very tense. Uh, the Institute here almost came to schism uh, over self psychology. 
um, but it did not. Uh, there, there emerged a kind of a middle group, kind of like in, in England, uh, kind of a middle group of people who were listening to both, um, both perspectives and, and, and then working out a more broadly uh, British and American object relations perspective. So this middle group kind of uh, emerged and, and I think prevented the Institute from splitting. Although it must be said that the real dyed-in-the-wool self-psychologists went off and formed their own institute. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then as the years went by, of course, I'm, I'm exposed to, to more and more to, to Winnicott, to Kernberg. I became very interested in Klein. Uh, I became quite interested, but highly ambivalent uh, towards uh, Jacques Lacan, uh, Stephen Mitchell and the relational people. Uh, so uh, here were all of these groups of intelligent psychoanalysts, uh, all of them saying very interesting things, but all of them kind of remaining within what I think of as their silos. Uh, very little cross talk across the silos. Um, and uh, I guess I early on just became involved with what I guess could be called comparative psychoanalysis, although I have to say my my approach is, uh, my interest is in, in something more than comparing and contrasting. Uh, I think I would call my approach one of critical psychoanalysis. I mean, I'm an academic first and foremost, and critique, actually the opening chapter of the book is called On Critique, um, as a, as a sociological, uh, sociologist, I was always a, th- a theorist and I was grounded in critique that is critical thinking. I shock some of my colleagues, uh, my analytic colleagues, when I say that logic plays a large part, uh, in my approach to psychoanalytic theory, I look for logical contradictions like Freud's contradictory view of the superego. I mean, in his work on, on clinical work on pathology, he identifies the sadistic superego as at the root of the problem. And his view of the superego clinically becomes more and more severe and harsh as time goes on. And yet in civilization and its discontents, suddenly the superego becomes a good cop uh, protecting us from the bestiality of the id, which I think is a major error on Freud's part to identify human destructiveness with the beast, the animal in man. But nevertheless, um, suddenly in civilization and its discontents, the superego is a good cop. Well, which is it? Is it the sadistic, internal, castrating uh, sadist, or is it uh, the good cop who makes civilization possible? Um, so now that's logical critique. I mean, Freud can't really have it both ways. Well, maybe he can. He's a genius. He might have found a way to reconcile, but he didn't seem to even be aware of the contradiction. And he certainly didn't address this contradiction. And so that's an example of critique. And and I do that to Freud. I do that to Klein. I do that to Winnicott. I do that to all of the theorists, because if you take the step into theory, you in the process, pick up the obligation to not be engaged in contradiction, to try to eliminate contradiction as much as possible. 
Now, of course, it's never possible to eliminate it entirely. We're human. We're broken. Uh, we will fall into contradiction, but it's our job to try to eliminate contradiction as much as possible. So I bring this critical approach to psychoanalysis as well as a comparative uh, comparative approach. So uh, I guess I wrote this book uh, out of my uh, as a result of my long uh, ongoing struggle to hear all of these different voices. And I respect all of these voices because I really think that most of the major contributors have seen something real, have seen something true. But unfortunately, uh, they have all um, convinced themselves that the piece of the truth that they got is the whole truth, which it clearly isn't. And all of these pieces need to be put together and assembled so that we can evolve towards a higher order truth. Okay, so I hear how you use critical thinking to critique the major contributors, and I think you do that in in your chapters of your book. But your your title has the word dialectical in it. Does dialectical add anything beyond just the idea of being critical of uh, critiquing? Yes, most definitely. Uh, I I guess I'm a Hegelian thinker. Um, I'm, I'm thinking right now of the, con- of the conflict between Hegel and Kierkegaard. Uh, Hegel is always going for the synthesis, the both and, and Kierkegaard uh, writes a book called Either Or. Uh, sometimes we can have our cake and eat it too. We can get to the both and, the synthesis, but other times we face a fork in the roads and it's either or, and there's a really crucifying uh, decision to be made and a kind of death involved in choosing this over that. But I think ultimately Hegel wins because in our thinking, we need to include both, both and, and either or. So on that higher level, I think Hegel wins. Certainly Hegelian dialectical thinking uh, always um, appealed to me and I have always thought that way. I've always been bothered by the fact that human thought falls into these polar this polarization and the way i put it i think in the book is that we stagger like drunkards uh, from one pole of a binary opposition to the opposite pole and back again and certainly that's the history of psychoanalytic theory Um, each of these schools polarizing um, rarely getting to the to the third thing, rarely getting to the synthesis. So yes, dialectical thinking. Okay, yeah, I'm thinking of an example maybe of of the dialectical way you work when you compared um, the Klein and self-psychology in terms of how they understand the cure. I had never, of course, put Klein and self-psychology, I thought of them as like worlds apart in some ways, but can is that an example of of dialectical, what you found in common between them? Um, I'm not sh- maybe, that's maybe not the best example. Uh, that's more an example, I think, of, of comparative psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm comparing Klein and Kohut. As you say, most people think they're like oil and water. At least in the area of their theory of the cure, they're very much in agreement. Uh, Klein sees the cure as the 
building up of a, a whole good internal object through internalization of the goodness of the mother. By the way, uh, the distortion is there that she ignores the real world and the real mother. And that distortion is so pervasive and it's so false. All you have to do is read a bit of Melanie Klein and you see how important the external mother is and the real analyst is because it's only from the outside that we can actually take in the goodness uh, that would eventually result in the building up of a good internal object. Uh, but again, for Heinz Kohut, it's transmuting internalization of the affectively attuned and empathically uh, uh, responsive self-object analyst. So here we have an agreement between Klein and Kohut. That's comparative psychoanalysis. Uh -huh. In terms of um, the dialectical approach, um, I can't tell you on what page of the book, somewhere about halfway through the book, there's a long chart in, in which on the left side, um, I put more traditional psychoanalytic thinking on a range of issues, and on the right, um, more relational, intersubjective um, uh, self-approaches. And I contrast these two approaches on uh, a number of different dimensions. And there's the polarity. Um, but I'm doing that contrast precisely to try to get people to, uh, to see that both of these perspectives are necessary with all patients at different times. Certainly, we may work with certain uh, pretty well put together neurotic patients primarily from the, from the standpoint of a, a kind of deconstructive approach, making helping them become aware of their fantasies and helping them see through the one-sidedness uh, or the illusory nature. Well, Winnicott talks about how the mother has to both illusion the infant and then disillusion the infant. And so I take that as a characteristic polarity. Some schools of thought are very much about helping to liberate the patient from illusions. But other approaches recognize that certain very damaged patients need to be illusioned before they can possibly tolerate disillusionment. So there are constructive approaches and deconstructive approaches, illusioning and disillusioning approaches. But both of these are needed uh, in order to, to, to work uh, with a diversity, a, a range of patients. I mean, maybe you could get away with entirely being a disillusioning, deconstructive, uh, Freudian, Kleinian, Lacanian analyst if you confined your practice uh, to fairly high-functioning neurotics. Uh, okay, but if you want to work with borderline or psychotic or deeply narcissistic patients, that's not going to work. Uh, you have to work in a different way for a considerable period of time. And the relational and self and intersubjective people have contributed a lot about how to work with um, these um, more narcissistically sensitive, thin-skinned kinds of patients. So then, I guess, for you, a well-prepared psychoanalyst and I'm thinking of people like me who are still in training, would be exposed uh, to, well, I guess, all the different silos, as you call them, um, and that would constitute good psychoanalytic training? Or what are your thoughts about how psychoanalytic training should handle this matter? Well, that's exactly correct. <clears throat> I think it's um, very hard 
uh, to be a candidate to learn psychodynamic therapy and learn psychoanalysis. It's incredibly complex. And I understand that candidates uh, who have to sit with patients, um, they want to feel that they know what they're doing or what they should be doing. And so they glom on to one theory and they become ideological Freudians or they become ideological Kleinians or cohesions, whatever. Um, they need a map and so they glom on. Um, but, but they should be encountering a whole lot of pressure from seasoned analysts uh, to resist that. I, I understand they may need to do that for a while um, to contain their anxiety. I mean, that's what ideology does. It contains anxiety. But they should be pressed um, to move on <clears throat> and accept the responsibility to learn all the models. Now, that's daunting. It's hard enough to master Freud, then to have to master Klein, then to have to master Koha, then to have to master Lacan. I mean, um, this is daunting. Uh, maybe towards, as you near retirement, you might be getting there. This is one of the great terrible things about this field. Uh, it takes forever uh, to get to the point where you really can become something of a master clinician. It takes a lot of seasoning to be able to get there, and you have to have a good mind. And um, although one of the big themes in the book is my, my work on the distinction between superego and conscience, you know, Freud folded conscience into superego, and we lost the possibility thereby of looking at conflicts between them. And um, so I said an analyst needs to have a good mind. Well, that's true, because there's all of this complex theory that you really do need to uh, try to master. But that's not enough. You also need a good heart. That is, you need a conscience. And I don't think in assessing candidates for training or in assessing applicants for training analyst status, we have... Um, done a very good job of assessing the level of their conscience functioning. I mean, one can be brilliant and a psychopath. Um, one can be a brilliant intellectual and kind of heartless. And we don't want those people in our field. Um, and we haven't done a very good job of assessing because we haven't really had an adequate concept of conscience. I mean, people can have wonderful superegos. They may know the rules but they may just not give a damn about the rules, or they may think, as psychopaths do, that the rules apply to the others, but not to them, because they're special. And we haven't been good at assessing conscience functioning, because Freud in 1923 got rid of the concept of conscience and folded it, along with ego ideal, into the superego. Okay, well, so you're making a good advertisement for new books in psychoanalysis because we interview authors of all kinds of different books from different kind of schools. So uh, listening to this podcast on a regular basis <laughs> is one of the ways people can can get exposed to new ideas. But I guess I'm thinking um, to try to be a devil's advocate about um, the importance of or how having to know all these different schools. I guess a lot of the experience of being a good psychoanalyst is is having had a good experience in analysis oneself and and having experienced something of that essential the essence of 
um, having somebody work with help you with with your own unconscious processes and having experienced that might be i don't know the bedrock kind of 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 um of how to practice and then and then learning all these different theories c- continues to add to that um what do you think that's uh that makes sense well certainly uh, the grounding in the experience of of analysis but i mean i had four different analysts um and they were radically different um, and the first two were senior guys who um, really, in their own analyses, they'd learned a lot about their their Oedipus complex. Uh, they learned a lot about their father issues. <clears throat> and they <clears throat> they would talk to me about my father issues. But my father issues were the least of my problem. Um, um, my real problem was my mother. And I couldn't get these guys to talk to me about my mother because they'd never talked about their mothers in their analyses. And so there's an intergenerational transmission of, of, of a kind of pathology, of omission. Um, so it's not enough to have a good analysis because the analysis may be conducted from one fairly ideological point of view. Um, um, and therefore, there may be a whole area of your soul that was not touched or barely touched in your analysis. I had, when I was through my analytic training, I had to seek out a woman analyst, a non-training analyst, um, who had been trained in England. She first was a pediatrician, then she became an analyst. She was at the Tavistock. She was very influenced by Bowlby and attachment theory. Well, finally, she would listen to me and help me understand what went so very wrong with my mother. Now, if I'd stopped with those two Freudian analysts, I would have been operating like, a, like someone with one hand tied behind his back. Um, so no, a good analysis is not enough. Uh, unless you just are so blessed, you happen to be in analysis with a guy who has, you know, analyzed all of the major areas of his soul and knows all of the major schools of thought. Um, but you don't want to have an analysis only with a guy who can play on one or two strings of the violin, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, and clearly, I guess it was the third analysis where you you got well-grounded and Kleinian ideas, I, I think, if I'm right about that. Because... I think I first discovered you, we'll take a little digression here and then get back to the book because I want to look at the chapters in the book, but um, I discovered you on YouTube where you have quite a YouTube presence and um, you had a series on Klein, I think maybe six uh, little episodes on Kleinian theory that I found incredibly helpful and quite persuasive. Um, Do you want to say a little more about about your YouTube sort of content and... uh, well, you know, I've always been a, a writer and love to write, but I'm now, I have macular degeneration of the eyes and I'm now legally blind. I mean, I, I can walk around and get on trains and buses, and uh, but uh, dealing with text is really difficult. The computer helps a lot with magnification and the iPad helps a lot with magnification. But the act of, of writing, I, I mean, I've got voice to text technology. Um, 
but it's not always so great. I find it awkward now to write. It never was awkward before to write. Uh, fortunately, the eyes really deteriorated towards the end of the preparation of the 2018 book that we're discussing. So I got that out, and my son was able to help me with, read proofs. But it is so much easier for me now to sit down at my computer and um, deliver a, uh, and make a video lecture. Um, it's a way of continuing to publish. And uh, I'm driven to it by the vision problem, but let's face it, uh, young people are much more oriented towards YouTube and to videos than they are to sitting for hours with a book in their hands. So I think it's a very convenient way to spread psychoanalytic knowledge via YouTube. I, I'm thrilled with the reception that, that my videos get. Yeah, I've... I've spent a lot of time in the gym uh, with my headphones on listening to your YouTube videos. You don't even have to watch them. You just have to listen to them. But um, a wonder, wonderful teaching resource, I think you've contributed to the psychoanalytic world and to, to people, candidates especially, but everybody. And far away people. I got, I've got a lot of interest from Iranians and, and, and Russians and, um, and uh, people in, in far away parts of the world. And that's very pleasing to me. Wonderful. Okay. Let's get back to what this book contains. And maybe you could just sort of itemize some of the different chapters or themes that you cover in the book. Well, I guess the, the, I think the first chapter is the Kleinian critique of Freud's civilization and its discontents. And, and that's a critique of, of, of what I think of as the myth of the beast I mean, there's a whole kind of Western um, uh, Eurocentric uh, white racist element here in attributing human destructiveness to, you know, the animal, uh, to uh, the dark continent, uh, the beast. Um, it's a total failure. Uh, I think it's a major failure of psychoanalysts swallowing Freud to recognize that uh, human evil has nothing to do with the animal in us. Uh, you know, we, we call these psychopathic killers animals. Would that they were animals. Only humans do this kind of thing. Uh, all of the latest research on animal life is about animal cooperativeness, animal altruism, um, the sociality of, 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 of other species, including wolves. I mean, Freud... Is, was fond of quoting um, uh, that uh, Roman writer uh, who, who, who says, uh, man is, is a wolf unto man. Well, no, uh, wolves are a highly social species. Uh, so, so there's this myth of the beast, and there's this myth that our problems bubble up from the animal in us, from the id. Uh, which has roots in the body. And all our lives long, we have to be exercising defenses against the evil impulses that bubble up from the id, both sexual and aggressive. I believe this is fundamentally incorrect. Uh, all of the, our troubling antisocial impulses uh, are uniquely human, and it's our humanness that leads us to build death camps, uh, particularly our capacity to fall into ideology. So I think, you know, this is a major error in psychoanalytic thinking. Um, so that, you know, Freud has this 
model of of mind versus body, culture versus nature. It's this ongoing conflict between superego and ego on the human side and id on the animal side, and we're locked into this battle, psychobiological model, uh, defenses versus drives. Okay, Klein, um, without really announcing it, she completely turns things around. She just eliminates the whole biological animal uh, element here. Um, she's, uh, she's doing psychology, not psychobiology. And the conflict is not between mind and body. It's a conflict within the mind and heart between love and hate. It's a pure psychology. Um, and it's a conflict between, well, I mean, Freud half got there with Eros Thanatos. And she picked it up. And she turned Eros into love and Thanatos into hate and made that the central human problem. Freud could have gone there, but he didn't. Not really. Uh, and of course, Anna Freud falls back to the earlier Freud. She doesn't break through the way Klein does by following the late Freud. Klein knew where Freud was going and went there. Um, Anna Freud went back to the older Freud. Um, uh, Freud also could have had the breakthrough which Lacan provides. Uh, in 1914, in his wonderful essay on narcissism, uh, he could have made narcissism. He makes that wonderful distinction between narcissistic love and object love. In narcissistic love, I think I'm in love with another, but the other is simply standing for me. Uh, uh, you know, she is the, uh, the self that I was or the self that I am or the self that I want to be. And it's a hall of mirrors. And I'm not really loving her at all. But Freud says sometimes we can transcend that narcissistic love for true object love. That's the same move that Winnicott called the development of the capacity for concern for the other. Now, Freud could have made this transformation from narcissism to a capacity to love the other. He could have made that the center of his psychology. But he didn't. Lacan did. This is one of Lacan's great contributions. And, and, and in making narcissism central, Lacan moves psychoanalysis back into sync with the Abrahamic religions. Uh, Christianity, Judaism, Islam have always seen the fundamental sin as, as, as the sin of pride, self-centeredness, i.e. narcissism. And the answer has always been to get beyond that and develop a capacity to actually love the other as an other. Okay, Lacan brings us back. I mean, you know, he's a profoundly Catholic uh, thinker, and uh, he brings us back uh, to that understanding, resituating psychoanalysis in essentially, a, in his case, a, a Christian context. Yeah. So you've mentioned Klein, you've mentioned Lacan. I think there's a separate chapter on Lacan. Yeah. What, what are some of the other chapters? Um, well, then I think the second chapter is the whole discussion of the 1923 decision to fold conscience into superego. And I'm pleading to remove conscience and ego ideal uh, as separate concepts to re reinstate them, in which case we have a five a structural model with five components, id, ego, superego, ego ideal, and conscience. And there are conflicts within each of those five, and then there are conflicts among the five, generating a total of 15 conflicts when you eliminate the overlaps. And now we have 
an expanded structural theory. And we've studied only about half of the conflicts that we are now able to see. Conflicts, say, between ego-ideal and ego, or ego-ideal and conscience, or ego-ideal and superego, etc., etc. Um, I, I hope some young person with the energy uh, takes it on to do a thesis and, and, and write a book studying each of these 15 conflicts with clinical examples of each of them. If someone's looking for a PhD thesis, there you go. Mm -hmm. um, so then there's, then there's a chapter on self and relational and intersubjectivity theory. Uh, there's a critique, uh, there's an appreciation of cohort. I use cohort a lot. I have deep respect for, for classical self-psychology. Um, uh, I wish he hadn't taken his army into Cambodia and broken off relations with headquarters uh, and recognized that he was adding on a wing, but only a wing to the mansion. Um, you know, his optimal frustration got replaced with optimal responsiveness. And now we have the cure conceived as a kind of reparenting. And all of this appeals to the grandiosity of the therapist who starts to think of himself or herself as a better mother, a better father, uh, filling in the cracks in the patient's self, a kind of thinking that often leads to boundary violations, frankly, because it, 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 it leads to a kind of omnipotence on the part of the, the therapist who thinks he's going to be a better parent, etc., etc. So there's a critique of what happened to self-psychology after Cohut. I'm not indicting Cohut himself, but some of the trends that, that followed him. And then I go on to talk also about relational and um, um, intersubjectivity theory. There's a long critique of Stollero, Atwood, and Brandshaft uh, in that chapter. And that's the place where I put, that's the chapter in which I put that page, which is, a chart um, comparing and contrasting illusioning and disillusioning constructive and deconstructive approaches. And that's where I make the dialectical appeal that we need both. And I'm trying to remember um, if there's anything in your book about the God question, because you and I discovered that's we have a something in common, which is our sort of relationship to the Anglican tradition, the church, I guess in Canada, is it called the church of England yes. and, um, and uh, Episcopalian down here? Yeah. And uh, you get questions that I do because of my background in that world. Uh, do you, what about God? Do you believe in God? And you have a bunch of YouTube uh, videos where you address this issue. I'm not sure if you do in your book or not, but I maybe it's worth saying something about that. I directly address it in the book, um, and my, my, my thinking has been shifting since the, the book. Uh, well, let me say something about the greatness of the, what's the best way? Okay, uh, Kleinian, Hannah Siegel. Uh, uh, we've got the, the, the two positions, paranoid schizoid and, and depressive position. And um, uh, in the paranoid schizoid position, we operate with symbolic equation, whereas in the more advanced position, uh, depressive position, we operate with symbolic representation. Um, I use the, the, the contrast between dead metaphors and live metaphors to correspond with symbolic equation, dead metaphor, symbolic representation, live metaphor. 
in the in PS things are literalized. Um, um, things are reified and concretized, uh, whereas in D, the patient is able to understand things as if, as metaphor. I mean, this is the difference between the erotized transference in PS and the erotic transference in D. In the erotic transference, the patient is kind of quotes in love with you, but kind of at the same time knows that there's something highly artificial about this love that's brought about in the context of the analysis. Um, uh, in the father transference, the patient kind of knows when the patient is in D that you are kind of like as if, but all of that as if is lost in PS, where symbolic equation uh, takes over. Now let's switch to religion. Um, in in ma mainstream Roman Catholic doctrine in the Eucharist, when the bread is blessed by the priest and the wine, it literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. Okay, now the opposite extreme of that would be the person, I had a patient who had to stop taking the Eucharist because when he came home, he had to take soap and wash out his mouth and his lips to get God's blood <laughs> off his face. Uh -huh. Okay, now that's symbolic equation. Uh, in D, um, uh, highly sophisticated followers of uh, Rudolf Bultmann and Paul Tillich, they translate it all into metaphor. It's all metaphor. It's a memorial activity. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread and the wine are as if. But that loses the mystery too, because it's now too deliteralized. It's too rational. One has fallen out of the transitional area in the opposite direction. The Roman Catholics fall out of the transitional into the literal. Um, uh, many modern uh, secular Christians fall out of the transitional into the merely mm, metaphorical. And here's the genius of Anglicanism. It describes itself as the via media, the middle way between Catholic and Protestant. And the Anglican solution is, uh, do you believe in God, Don, or don't you? Well, they don't ask the question. As Winnicott says, the parents mustn't ask of the soft toy, is it real or is it imaginary? Don't ask. Well, when I go to church, don't ask whether I believe in God or not. Uh, I'm in the transitional area. I don't ask when I go to the movies. I'm sitting in the movie and you, you ask me, you know, is this merely light projected from behind me on a screen? Well, you're going to that's going to really wreck my enjoyment of the film because I've entered into the transitional area. Now, I could fall out of that, and when the bad guy's about to, to stab his victim, I could go running up and try to interfere, literalizing the whole thing. That's falling out of the transitional, like the Roman Catholic, into the concrete, okay? But I could also be sitting there saying, bah, humbug, this is, this is just an illusion. I'm not, you know, I could distance myself from the film in that way. Anglicanism says, hold the transitional area. Don't literalize, don't deliteralize. Enter the play, enjoy the movie, enjoy the liturgy. Uh, so that's what I try to do. That's one of the answers that I have to the question. Do I now? The the other way I approach this is, I'm as a Kleinian. I I one never leaves the 
PS position entirely and moves over to D, um, we oscillate. There are good things in PS, passion, intensity. There are bad things in D. Um, Fence sitting, because you see all sides of every position, so you can't make a decision. Uh, So we we oscillate between PS and D. Um, When I'm in PS, I believe, I think, in a supernatural god. Uh, I believe in magic. I try not to. I try to inhabit D most of the time, but I'd be lying to myself if I said I entire. Well, of course, what is Freud's basic discovery? That we're all split. That we're all split between manifest and latent, conscious and unconscious. We're all both Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Do I believe in God? In P.S.? Sure. I believe in a magical, supernatural deity. When I'm in D? No, I don't believe in a magical, supernatural deity. So I, I, I try to approach the question that way as well. But certainly it's my involvement with Christianity that made me particularly uh, dissatisfied with Freud's theory of the superego. Uh, just as Martin Luther, uh, who was beaten by his father, had a severe uh, superego, tried to placate and please it by being the most diligent monk, praying harder, sacrificing more, until he drove himself to a breakdown in the choir. And suddenly, what emerged was a completely different concept of God, a loving, forgiving God, rather than a God whose love you win, uh, not through grace, but, but, but through works, through doing good works, through striving to be better, and so on. So there's the Protestant Reformation. Um, and for me, um, uh, I'm using the secular language of conscience. In all truth, conscience for me is Christ. Uh, it's, it's the voice of Jesus in me. Um, that's what conscience is. Conscience is all about love. And it comes from being loved by the primary caregiver who teaches us what love is. She kept us alive, after all, even if she did a terrible job. Those of us who are still alive and and have language and bowel function owe a lot to her. Um, We were loved, so we owe. And we're called to give love back. And conscience is all about that. Superego is just a bunch of rules that we internalize from society, and many of the rules are, are wrong, bad. Mm-hmm. All of our homophobia, our heterosexism, all of that racist stuff, that's all there in the superego. That's where it comes from. Um, and, and therefore, that superego needs to be... Now, sometimes the superego has good stuff in it, which corresponds with conscience. Um, but... Conscience is the standard by which we must evaluate what the superego is saying. Uh, So Ed Snowden had a conscience, and his superego was saying, be a loyal American, don't reveal state secrets, but his conscience called him to be a a whistleblower. And he's made a, a huge sacrifice by following the voice of conscience. Because, of course, if the voice of conscience is the voice of Christ, then following it may get you crucified. Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking about, as we sort of get towards our end here, in some ways, um, 
maybe we as psychoanalysts can provide for our patients an experience, the kind of experience you were, the as if experience in the in the transitional space that you describe as um, part of Anglican worship tradition. That could be something patients get in session with us when we're doing our job well. Especially when, when, when we are carrying the conscience in the treatment. I, I, I completely agree that, that therapists must not be super ego-ish with patients, judgmental, etc. But they count on us to have a conscience. They count on us to have a conscience and at crucial moments to carry the conscience in the treatment. Uh, and by carry it, I don't mean telling them what to do, but I mean uh, sometimes speaking to it. Um, uh, I mean, it's a compass. I mean, look, I mean, psychoanalysis has denied that it is a moral enterprise, but it has been a moral enterprise from the beginning. We value consciousness over unconsciousness. We choose love over hate. We value life over death. We value kindness over cruelty. But we've always denied this and, and, and tried to avoid this moral language by converting it all into the language of mental health. This is healthier. That's sick. This is healthy. It's all a cover story. Basically, we think some things are good and we think some things are bad, but we've been ashamed to say so. Um, and, and the good or bad, uh, those, those judgments come from both the superego and the conscience. But the conscience operates on the level of the universal, the human as such, cross-culture, cross-historical periods. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's always, uh, children all over the world say, that's not fair. Uh, you had your turn, I had mine. Now, there's the norm of reciprocity which is really the essence of conscience, um, and it's universal. I mean, the sociologists, the social scientists have not helped us by leading us to think that, that these moral issues are socially constructed. Well, there's a level of superego, which is entirely historically and socially constructed, but there's a core of morality, which is universal and across cultures. And... Um, on that level, we carry the conscience, I think, in, in, the, in the treatment. Yeah, I found this whole area extremely helpful in it, um, in, in my own practice, differentiating the conscience from the superego, separating those two things as different things. And then how you talk about, then we can, whenever we see the superego showing up in the session, it's not a good thing. And the goal is to, to, to demolish it. And to preserve the conscience. Anyway, you you helped me a lot with that whole area. I'm I'm wondering if um, as we wrap up here, are there any other things that you want to say uh, in either a book or or I guess future YouTube videos? What's kind of on your mind or needs to be worked on? I started work on a third book, but I was finding it, and and um, it was going to be more of a a, a practical um, uh, introduction to to psychotherapy, a very personal vision of what I think is most important. But um, I think I'm the couple of chapters I got written. I think I'm going to turn them into video lectures, 
Um, one is simply the question, what is psychoanalysis? So I'm going to do a video uh, on that. Um, I'm going to do a video on transference. I got a lot to say about transference. Um, I think that the idea of psychoanalysis as inviting the transference and working in the transference and the idea that the only valid psychoanalytic work is work in the transference, inviting an intense transference neurosis, I think that often harms people. Um, um, I had a colleague who almost got thrown out of training because 40 years ago, a woman asked him, so this is psychoanalysis. Does this mean I have to fall in love with you? And he answered her and said, uh, he said, no. And if you do, I'll feel we've gone off the track somewhere. Now, he almost got thrown out of analytic training for answering her that way. Oh, you're closing off the transference. You're dodging the emergence of a track. Well, so many women have been harmed by spending years in a transference love to their deified analysts when they should be finding a man and having babies, if that's what they want. Okay, uh, and the narcissist, they're worshipping at the feet of this narcissistic analyst who just wants to hear about himself all of the time. This is not helpful. So I, I want to say a lot about cancer. I look forward to hearing that. And I really appreciate your your willingness just to put it out there and make direct statements about, I think this is true, and I don't think that's correct, Dan. Uh, and we need more of that because it opens up um, – questions and conversations among all of us that then I think lead to. It's, uh, Philip, it's easy for me because like I'm old and <laughs> I've, I've, I've had all of the honorific positions. What are they going to do to me now? Uh, you know? <laughs> nothing left to lose. I'm afraid I still have to be much, much more careful, but well, thank you very much, um, Donald, for, for speaking to us today. It was a pleasure talking to you, Philip. Hope we get to talk again sometime. Me too. So you have been listening to an interview with Donald Carveth um, about his book, Psychoanalytic Thinking, A Dialectical Critique of Contemporary Theory and Practice, here at the New Books in Psychoanalysis podcast, which is a channel of the New Books Network. Check out our website and feel free to email me with your comments and questions. Thank you for listening.